Acts chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a red one nearby you on the chairs. Uh, If you are going to use the red Bible, Acts 17 is on page 540. This is actually our last week in the book of Acts. Um, We've been in the book of Acts really since January, and we've been walking through how uh, Christ is, through his spirit and in his church, taking the gospel to the ends of the world. And we've seen that time and time again, that the apostles and disciples are bringing the gospel to everyone that they meet. And next week, we're going to actually have a visiting pastor who's going to preach, uh, and so we're going to be done with this sermon series. And then the week after that, we're going to begin a new sermon series called Summer of Love, where we're going to talk about what does it mean to obey the greatest commandment, which is to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so I'm excited for that sermon series in two weeks, but today we're finishing the book of Acts. And Uh, We don't have to not talk about loving our neighbors because, in fact, in Acts 17, we see Paul sharing the gospel with neighbors, and we're going to focus on that today. Uh, We're going to focus on the gospel for our neighbors. Now, in Acts 17, Paul is in Athens, and you might know this, but Athens, it was a, a cultural epicenter of the ancient world. I mean, Athens had Uh, some of the best schools of philosophy there. It had some of the biggest and most beautiful temples that people would travel miles to come and worship. It had some of the best entertainment and art. It was a cultural epicenter. You you might think in in those days it was a combination of like New York City, Los Angeles, and Washington, D.C., all thrown into one. And Paul is there and meeting neighbors and sharing the gospel with them. But today in the 21st century, what's fascinating is like, we don't have to actually go to New York or LA or Washington to, to interact with these cultural things. Through the beauty of technology and, and the fact that we have just spread all over the face of the earth, like here in Cleveland, we can go down to Playhouse Square and see wonderful art and plays. We can go to the, the Cleveland Art Museum and see beautiful pieces of art, or you can go to Case Western or John Carroll and receive these wonderful educations. You can go to the Cleveland Browns or watch the Cavaliers and see some of the greatest athletes, well, maybe not Cavaliers, but some of the greatest athletes that the world has to offer. Like, we don't have to go to these epicenters anymore. Culture is here. We have access to some amazing things and some amazing people. And so as we look at Acts 17 and learn how does Paul share the gospel with neighbors living in Athens, we need to ask, what does that mean for us to share the gospel with neighbors living in Cleveland? And as we look at this passage, we're going to ask three questions. And so if you're taking notes or want to follow along with where we're going, these are the three questions that will guide us this morning. What was Paul's motivation for sharing the gospel? What was Paul's method for sharing the gospel? And what was Paul's message? What was Paul's motivation? What was Paul's method? And what was Paul's message? Well, let's read Acts 17, verses 16 through 34, and find out. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols 
So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all of the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he condemns all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst but some men joined him and believed, and among them also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want, we want your word to take root in our heart so that, Lord, as we speak your word to others, that they might come to know this God that we're all longing for. Lord, reveal yourself to us through your word and in your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so first we ask, what was Paul's motivation for sharing the gospel with his neighbors? And that's a great place to start because motivation is so important when it comes to why we do this. Look, and we do need to share the gospel. There's no question about that. Jesus commands it. He is our Lord and our Savior, and the last thing that he commissioned his church to do was to go and make disciples of all nations, and that includes Cleveland, Ohio. We are to go and make disciples of our neighbors. In fact, if we are not 
making disciples. If we are not sharing the gospel with our neighbors, then we are not doing the very thing that the church is called to do. It's great that we welcome people who are moving from one church to another, but Story Church is not doing what we are called to do if that's all we have. Christians moving from one church to another. You know, we exist to invite neighbors into a new story shaped by Jesus, and that means we do need to meet neighbors and share with them the gospel. And so our motivation matters. Yes, Jesus says that we ought to do it and that we should do it, but should do it is a terrible motivator. On Thursday at our story group, we were laughing about dental hygiene, and it was one of those you had to be there to find it funny, and I'll spare you the details, but let's think about dental hygiene for a second. When you go to the dentist and your doctor is asking you, hey, are you flossing, what do you say? No, but I should be, right? No, but I should be. So should be is not a great motivator. It doesn't really compel us to do the thing that we ought to do. So let's look at what Paul's motivation is, because he also knew that we should be sharing the gospel, but there was something else that compelled him. And we see actually two motivations here in this passage. The first, we see two places, verses 18 and 31. Paul talks about the resurrection of Jesus. He, he believed that the resurrection was this historical fact, this point in time that you could look back on and say, Jesus rose from the dead. And in fact, there were people still alive at that time that you could go and talk to in Jerusalem who were both eyewitnesses to Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. And so Paul believed that Jesus rose from the dead, and because Jesus rose from the dead, everything has changed. Because the, the implications of the resurrection are manifold. Like, because Jesus rose from the dead, that means that his sacrifice for our sin was accepted by God. It, it, it means that death and decay and suffering does not have the last word. That there is real hope in this world. It means for those who have faith in Jesus, although we will die, we will live forever with him in a resurrected, restored, glorified, physical body. Look, because of the resurrection, everything has changed. Jesus is the Lord of lords and King of kings. And every knee in heaven and on earth will bow before him and worship. And because of that, Paul says, I want my neighbors to know this king. I want my neighbors to know this hope that we have because Jesus rose from the dead. Christians, if you believe Jesus rose from the dead, do you want your neighbors to have that hope too? That's what motivated Paul. But secondly, we also see that Paul had this tremendous and deep love for his neighbors in Athens. It says that in the first verse of our section, that Paul was going around in verse 16, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. And that phrase, his spirit was provoked within him, it's talking about this deep this moving feeling in the core of his being, his heart, if we will. And, and it, this, this movement that was happening in his heart, 
it was provoking him. It was, it was hurting him. It was, it was this anger at what he saw, but it was an anger that was rooted in love. He was moved with compassion when he saw that this city was full of idols. He saw these people in Athens who were made to worship the one true God, and he saw that they were worshiping things less than him. And it moved him to have love towards his neighbor. Most of our neighbors in Mayfield and in Cleveland don't worship things made out of metal, gold, and silver. But that doesn't mean that we don't have idols today. In his wonderful book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller gives us this great illustration of what an idol is today. He says an idol is anything that's a, that when we take a good thing and we turn it into an ultimate thing. So whether that's a relationship or, or, or a job or, or something that's a good thing to have in our lives, we turn it into an ultimate thing. Something that we stake our life on and say, man, I'm not really living unless I have this. And so one question that we can ask is, what are we living for? What, what are our neighbors living for? Or, or what, what do we dream of? What do we hope for for our future? Like when you think this summer, and this summer is going to be a great summer as long as I've, I can do this. Or like the next year or five years, when you, when you vision where are you going to be in five years, what is your dream and hope? Do you say, unless I achieve this, it's all a waste? My question is, is God a part of that dream? Like when you look at yourself and your family in five years from now, is God part of that life that you want to have? Or, I mean, I'm tempted to do this too. Or, or are you focusing on a relationship or a friendship or a career or a house, some, some perception from your peers, what is it that you're hoping for? And is God a part of that or not? All of our neighbors are living for something. And Paul is moved in his heart when he sees that these neighbors were not living for God. How does your heart react when you look around your neighborhood, your workplace, and you see your neighbors living for something that's not for God. I think we often fall into two things. E either our heart moves with love and compassion and, and, and concern for their well-being, or, uh, you know, we move with judgment. Oh, I can't believe that's what they're living for. I mean, that's, that's so immature of them. And that, that's, so, that's so futile. I can't believe that. We pass judgment on them. But Paul's motivation was love. And he looked and he saw his neighbors living for something less. And it was moved within his core being to have love for his neighbors. So that was Paul's motivation. But now we need to ask, now that he's motivated, how does he do it? What is the method that Paul uses to share the gospel? Well, in verse 17, we see that he reasoned both in the synagogue and in the marketplace, every day with those who happen to be there. Now, that word marketplace, uh, it's, it's not like grocery store. It wasn't like that Paul went into the Aldi 
and started talking to everyone on the aisles. Now, the, the marketplace, the agora in the ancient world was this city square, this public forum where, yeah, people did buy and sell things. If you were a small business owner, you'd go there and set up shop every day. But also, like, if, if you were a politician, that's where you went to campaign and, and to give your platform. If you were a performer, an entertainer, like, that's where you'd go to put on your plays and, and interact with people. If, if you were a philosopher, an educator, a teacher, a student, you went to the Agora to, to teach and to learn and to converse. Like, the Agora, the marketplace, this was, th these are where all of the, like, public institutions of, of commerce and finance and education and, and politics and religion, all of these things met together in the marketplace. And Paul says, that's where I want to go with the gospel. I want to go into the public. Yeah, he did go to the synagogues, the religious sector, but then he said, I need to go to the marketplace too. His method for sharing the gospel was to take the gospel into the public and to reason with one another there. Now, I understand the fear and anxiety of taking your faith out of your private lives, out of your religious sectors, and bringing it into the marketplace. I understand. Like, I, I know that you've got fears of, like, what will your friends and neighbors think of you when you start talking to them about Jesus? Are they going to like me? Are they going to hate me? Are they going to reject me? I understand that. I, I understand, like, when you're at your workplace, what will your coworkers or even your supervisors think of you if you open your mouth about going to church? Like, are you going to be passed over for a promotion? Are you not going to be part of the team anymore? Like, as a pastor, every single time I meet someone new and introduce myself and they ask me, oh, so what do you do? Like, in that moment, I know that fear that how I answer that question is going to set the trajectory of that relationship. I feel that all the time. And so I know your fear, too. But Paul believed that the gospel was not to just be privatized into a compartment of his life but could indeed hold its own against the predominant cultural institutions of the day. At the workplace, at the schools. Do you believe that that's true about the gospel? Do you feel comfortable bringing the gospel into those institutions? Paul didn't just believe the gospel could hold its own against these cultural institutions. He also believed that the gospel could hold its own against the predominant worldviews of the day. Because we see that he's also engaging in verse 18 with the Epicureans and the Stoics. These were like the two big philosophies, worldviews of the day. If you lived in Athens, you were either an Epicurean or a Stoic. And these worldviews they defined how you understood God or, or man and the purpose of life. And Paul was engaging with them because he believed that even people who were Stoics or Epicureans, that they too needed to hear the gospel. And so let me explain what these guys are. Like it's been a long time since I took ancient philosophy, and I'm sure there's other people in this room who can explain these better than me, but I think simply put, we can understand uh, them in this way. So Epicureans, they were what we might call today pluralists. 
Like, they didn't have a certain, like, this is the right way to view God, but they really understood, like, hey, if it works for you, that's great. As long as you're a good person and you're pursuing what you think is right, that's fine. Because Epicureans, what they thought was the most important thing in life was not obedience to some divine, but was the pursuit of happiness, as long as you weren't hurting one another. And so that's Epicureans. But the Stoics, they, they did believe in a God, but he was, you know... The God was sort of this distant, uninterested God. And he had these regulations and values. And the purpose of God was really to teach us through discipline and self-control that we can get through the hardships of life. If we bunker down and do what we're supposed to do, well, then we're going to get through pain and suffering. They are what we might call moralists. That there's a way to live, and that's what God gave us to do. And if we just follow those values then we're going to get through life unharmed. And so you have pluralists and moralists. And Paul says, I think that they too need to hear the gospel. Paul doesn't take the gospel and hide it from them. He brings it out into the public, into the marketplace, and he begins to talk to them. But when they invite him to talk further, he doesn't say, all right, Stoics, here's where you're wrong. Epicureans, here's where you're wrong. All y'all just got to get on board with what I'm believing. He doesn't do that. Because actually, when he has the chance to talk, what's amazing is that he doesn't directly challenge them. Instead, he works to build common ground. He works to build common ground with them. Look at verse 22. Paul gets up and says to them, I perceive that in every way you all are very religious. He says, you're religious and so am I. Like, I understand that desire to connect with the divine. I get it. I'm just like you. And then he keeps going in verse 28. He starts addressing the Epicureans and the Stoics about uh, the resurrection. And he actually quotes two of their own poets, their own philosophers. And he says, look, I know what your poets have said. They say, in him we live and move and have our being. Yes, amen, that is true. He says, for we are indeed his offspring. Yes, I agree with your own philosophers on these points. We have common ground. What Paul is doing, he's not directly challenging them because he knows that they won't listen to them. But he goes forth and says, let's have common ground. Let's, have, let's, let's build a relationship on these things that we can agree with one another. He says, we're more alike than you might realize. I see that you're religious. I see that your poets have said these very true things about God. We have a lot in common. Let's start there. I wonder how we can apply that method today. Like if Paul was in Cleveland, what would he say? Like he might say something like this. I perceive that everyone wants to be a good person. And that's great. Like, it's good to want to be a good person. Or he might say, I, I can sense that you care a lot about justice. You care a lot about what is right and what is wrong. And when people act unjustly, there should be punishment. Like, I perceive that that's true of your culture. It's not enough, but let's start there. He might say, hey, I went to your movie theaters and I saw the Marvel movies and I see that you have this desire for a superhuman who, who loves and lays down his life for those he loves. 
Like, I understand your desire for a Savior. Now, can I tell you what your desires are pointing to? Like, can I tell you that there is a God who cares about justice? There is a God who wants you to be good. There is a God who is more than just a man, and he did lay down his life for you. Let's start with common ground with our neighbors and work from there. It's going to take a lot of work. But Paul, he was a Roman citizen, grew up in Tarsus, this Greek-influenced Jewish city. He was taught under one of the leading rabbis of his day. He learned Hebrew and Greek. He learned the stories of his Bible and the stories of the ancient mythologies. He was one of the most educated people of his day. Why? So that he could learn his neighbors and learn their lives and their hopes and their dreams. And then when given the opportunity, present Jesus to them in a way that they want to hear. What do you know about your neighbors? Do you know what they're living for? Do you know what scares them? Do you know what their hopes are? Do you know what books they're reading? What movies and TV shows they're watching? Where, where do they get their news? It's hard work to love our neighbors in this way. But it starts as simple as this. Hey, are you watching anything fun lately? Hey, what, what, what troubles you? Can, can I pray for you? One great tool that we're beginning to use at Story Church is something called a neighbor map, which is, encourages us to think of the eight neighbors around our own house and to ask, what are their names? What's something unique about them that identifies them apart from others? And what do they believe? It takes a while. I mean, you're actually going to have to go and talk to your neighbors. But if we want to invite our neighbors into a new story shaped by Jesus, we have to learn something about them. We have to build common ground with them. And when we are given the opportunity to share a message of hope to them, well, then we know exactly what they need to hear. So what did Paul say? What was his message? When he was given the platform to speak, what did he say? Well, let's remember, who is he talking to? The Epicureans and the Stoics. And if we could combine their beliefs all together and say, all right, this is what the average Athenian believed, this is what we'd find out. That there is some divine being who exists, who probably created the world, but now he watches from a distance. All he says is be good to one another. I've given you tools to help you on that. And the central goal of life is to be happy. And you can pursue that through pleasure or through self-discipline. That, that God is fine living at a distance unless there's something wrong with my life, well, then he better show up and help. And ultimately, in the end, as long as I'm doing what I'm supposed to do and I die, I'm going to go someplace better. Look, that's what the common Athenian believed. But I think that that's what our neighbors believe too. There's some God out there. He might have created everything, but he's not really involved anymore. Yeah, he's given us principles to live by, to not hurt one another. But ultimately, what matters is my own happiness and pleasure. And as long as I'm true to myself, well, 
at the end of life, it's going to be okay for me. That's what our neighbors believe. Maybe, maybe that's what you believe. So what's the message that Paul gives to these people? Because at best, this God really just exists for our own happiness. And at worst, he's a cold and distant God that I don't care about. That, that's what we might believe about God. But I think, and I think Paul knows this, that's not actually what we want from God. We might think that that's who God is, but that's not actually what we want from God. Like, if we think that all that God is there for is for our own, our own personal happiness, what we've really done is we've substituted God for ourselves. And that ultimately what really matters is, am I the center of the universe? Is my happiness and pleasure fulfilled? Is my dreams answered? And when we become God, when we become the center of the world, well, that's a burden that's too heavy for us to bear. That's too exhausting. We will be crippled under the weight of that self-fulfillment. We might say that that's why God exists, but what we really want is for a God to exist apart from us who can sustain us. We might think that God is cold and distant, but what we really want is actually something different. Because if God is cold and distant, what ends up happening is we realize on our darkest days that the most important and powerful thing in the universe doesn't care about us. And we end up lonely. The most lonely person in the world. We might say that God is distant, but what we really want is a God who loves and that's what Paul tells us. That's what Paul tells the Athenians, that there is a God, and he's big and powerful, and there is a God who loves us. Look how he does this. In verse 24, Paul says that, that this God, this unknown God that they're longing for, this is the God who created the world and everything in it. He is Lord of the heavens and earth. He is so big and powerful that he has created everything. And then second, in verse 25, he says that this God is not served by any human hands. He doesn't live in a temple built by us. He is the supreme God. He is the one who gives life and breath and being. God is so big and powerful. He is totally independent. He doesn't need you and I to exist, but we need him to exist. Verse 26, he says that this is the God who made all of the nations of the world, and he is the one that set the times and the dwelling places of them. So nations rise and fall at his hand. Leaders come and go because he says so. You live where you live now and do what you do now because he determined it. He is completely sovereign. This big God, this independent God, this sovereign God is far bigger and more powerful than you could ever imagine. He is the one in whom we live and breathe and move and have our being, as some of your poets have said. Yes, he can sustain us. We don't have to pursue our own happiness. We can trust that he gives us everything that we need for life. But this big God, this powerful God who sustains us, he's not distant. Because he's determined in such a way that, that we, can, we can grope after him, to, to find him, to seek after him. 
because he is not far. He is near to us. As some of your poets said, we are his offspring. Like we were made to be in relationship with this God. He's not distant. He's close and he's coming closer. And if you don't know him yet, search him because you can find him. Yes, this God is big, but he has come close and has made himself known. And the way that he has made himself known is that God has appointed this man, Jesus Christ. And it's in his coming, his living, his teaching, his death, and in his resurrection that we can know God. This powerful God who comes to build relationship with us. The Stoics at that time believed that these principles, these values that we are supposed to live by, they called them the logos. They had this Greek word, the logos, this summation of truth, these fundamental principles that if we just obey them, then we will get through life. But the beautiful thing about the gospel is that the logos, it's a word that means word. And John starts his gospel in this way. In the beginning was the logos, was the word. But this logos wasn't something to follow to obey. It wasn't rules to follow. It was a person to know because the Logos became man and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory. We can know the God, this unknown God, the God that we're longing for, the God that we want, this powerful God who sustains us, and this close God who comes near to us in relationship. We have him in Jesus. Jesus is the way to connect with God. He is the image of God. He is the revealer of God. He's what our hearts are longing for. He's what our neighbors are longing for. That's the message that we offer people, is that through Jesus, they can know God and have a relationship with him. On the cross, Jesus took away our sin, canceling our debt against God. In his resurrection, he gives us new life so that through faith in him, we will live for him and with him for eternity. So that's the message that Paul gave. But as you see, they interrupted him when they got to the resurrection. They mocked him. They jeered at him. They couldn't believe it. They laugh to him. Look, I know that when we start sharing the gospel with our neighbors, some of them are going to mock us. Some of them are going to laugh at us. Some of them are going to reject us. How did Paul do it? I mean, how did Paul face that mockery time and time again? Well, he knew that the Savior that he preached, Jesus, he was mocked. He knew that when they put the, the crown of thorns on Jesus' head and they stripped him naked and put a purple robe on him, that they mocked him and bowed before him, jeering to him. Like they said, this is the one who said that he could save us all, but he can't even save himself. They laughed at him. And the same people that cheered him in as he rode on the donkey just a week later rejected him as he died on a cross. Paul knew that our Savior was mocked. 
And he knew that if Jesus was mocked, well, then when he talked about Jesus, he too would be mocked. And that's going to be true for us too. But despite that, Paul loved his neighbor and wanted them to know Jesus. Look, we've got difficult years ahead of us as a church as we share the gospel with our neighbors. We are going to be mocked. We're going to be laughed at. But we need to have love. We need to love our neighbor and share the gospel with them. Because Jesus is resurrected from the dead. He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And every knee will bow down and worship him. Well, let's start now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you.